fast, but for those of you that really want to dig into this, um, it's, it's recorded for us in 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 11, going through chapter 19, the story that begins with David's fall. His, well, he's supposed to be out leading as the king, leading the, the, the armies in battle. Instead, he stays back and he gets into trouble. He sees the neighbor woman out taking a bath in the evening. Bathsheba, he has sins for her. He has sexual relations with her. Again, a grievous sin in that married woman. He's, he has no business as the king doing this, obviously. Sends her back, thinks everything's fine until the note comes a few a little while later that she's pregnant. He tries to cover up his sin by bringing her husband back, Uriah, who, by the way, was one of his mighty men, his valiant warriors, he brings him back hoping that he can go and, and have some time with his wife. And then when then word gets out that she's pregnant, everybody will think it's Uriah. Well, he being a man of honor said, I'm not going to do that while my fellow brothers are out there fighting on the, in, the, in the battlefields. Wouldn't do that. So David eventually, after trying for a couple of days, sends him back with his own death sentence. The, the message says to put Uriah on the front lines and when the battle gets fierce to pull back, your, the, the message goes, he carries that to the commander. Sure enough, it happens, Uriah is killed in battle. David takes Bathsheba as his wife. She gives birth to this child and everything seems like it's going okay until, again, God doesn't allow that to David to get away with that. And we see in chapter 12 that the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel comes to David, gives him this parable outlining this, this story of a rich man taking a poor man's only lamb and using that as a, as an, to give as, a, as food for a visitor that comes. And David says, that man should be killed. And Nathan points at him and says, you are that man. And it says, and it goes on here, and this is kind of the background for it, as, as Nathan then says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because of what you've done, because you have despised me, the Lord speaking through Nathan, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He goes on though, and then David, David then confesses his sin, verse 13, it says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin, you shall not die, however... Because by this deed you have given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also is, that is to be born shall surely die. So we see David forgiven for his sin. And we don't have time to go into a great deal about that. But he's totally broken over his sin. He is remorseful. He's contrite. He is repentant. He's forgiven of his sin. But there's great consequences that come because of his actions. One of which is the child dies. But secondly, and the one I wanted to point out, the, the Lord said, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because of this, there is going to be consequences that follow through your household, through your children. And we see that starting right away in chapter 13. Amnon, one of his sons, and David had many wives. This problem with David goes way back. Many wives, children with all of those different wives. One of the children that he had was a, a son named Amnon. Through another wife, he has a daughter named Tamar. Amnon rapes Tamar and then pushes her away and leaves her. Tamar's brother, Absalom, which is another one of David's sons, is expecting David to deal with it. Well, David doesn't. 
And no doubt largely because he's like, who am I to judge my son with his sin when, I'm, when I've done these things? And he doesn't, he doesn't deal with it as he should. So Absalom takes matters into his own hands and kills his own brother Amnon and then flees and runs away. He's gone for three years. He eventually sends word back through some channels to see if he could come back to Jerusalem and David gives the the okay for him to come back to Jerusalem. But it's another two years before David and Absalom will ever even see each other face to face again. When they do, David embraces him and things seem to be okay and working through. There, but that's where we come to chapter 15, and I know I'm going really fast through this, but I have to, uh, but just to set the backdrop for this. Chapter 15 starts off with this. Now, Absalom is kind of back. He's, everything is, is good with his dad, but he's got other plans in mind, and it says this. Now, it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, When any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call out to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who had any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And then the man would come near and prostrate himself before him. He would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom's plans were this. He was gonna, when people would come, he'd say, oh, you know what? The king's too busy for you. The king can't help you. The king can't take care of you. He's, 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 you know, he's just got all of this other stuff. But if I, were, if I were king, if I were in that place, I would. Here, let me help you out with what I can do. And it tells us that Absalom stole the hearts away of many, many of the people. Lying, deceiving, doing all sorts of things, saying things that are totally not true about David, but people believed it and followed after Absalom. It tells us then, too, that now he has this coup. He gets approval from his dad to go away for a little bit. When he gets away, he has all of these people come to meet him, including a man named Ahithophel who was one of David's counselors, one that gave him counsel all the time. However, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, and he was very bitter and held, held, held this against David the whole time. And so now he's, here's my chance. He goes with Absalom. Absalom brings an army and they're gonna come to Jerusalem and overthrow David. Word gets to David and he said, there's no reason that, that all of this bloodshed should happen in Jerusalem. So he flees Jerusalem with his family and with many people that go with him and follow after him. So here we have Absalom, Ahithophel, a whole army coming against David. As David is leaving, somebody takes another advantage of that and comes up and says, hey, you know Mephibosheth, the guy that you helped out, Jonathan's son, he's turned his back on you. He's going to Absalom. Again, another lie. David David now crushed under that says, okay, well, you take what he had then. He keeps on going, and then this guy Shimei of the house of Saul is yelling curses at him and throwing rocks at David as he's leaving and walking out. I mean, you can't get a much worse day as, as what's happening to David. I mean, it's just one thing after another after another. Now, that, the not even Reader's Digest condensed version, that's like just... <laughs> 
crazy jamming it all in there. Um, but it needs, it's important to set the backdrop because that is what David is facing when it says, when David, he fled from Absalom, his son. He's running away. And here, notice this, verse one. Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. It just seems like everywhere he turns, there's another one coming against him. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Word is spreading around that God has forsaken David and raised up Absalom to be the king. I mean, this is what is spreading all over. And David takes this to takes this to the Lord in this, in this psalm. Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. They're saying that, they're, that, that you're not here to help me. You're not here to save me. You're not here with me anymore. And now we are introduced for the first time in the book of Psalms to this word, selah. It might be in your margin. It might be right up next to it. It will appear over and over and over in, in the book of Psalms. We don't know 100% for certain what it means. Some believe it's a musical thing where it's kind of like bringing it to a crescendo in music. Most tend to believe, though, it's a time of pause or reflection to kind of think, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? And this is one of those pauses that, to me, again, is it, and when we see this, it does. It should cause us to pause because... How many of us have had situations like that? Maybe, obviously, hopefully not as intense as the one we just explained in David. But it just seemed, one of those things where it just seems wherever you turn, something or someone or whatever it is just keeps coming against. It's just like, no matter where I'm going, I keep banging up against this. And the enemy is quick to jump on that, isn't he? To whisper in our ear to say, God's given up on you. God's not here to take care of you anymore. You did something to totally blow this. Or, you know, it might be any myriad of reasons. And in that, we see this, we just, just to take a pause, that, that none of that was true. None of that was true, although the enemy, the flesh, the world wants us to believe it. Verse three, though, I love again how it starts. But you. As we've talked about, that's one of my favorite words in the Bible is but. Is it, it, takes, it takes everything that we just talked about and it totally flips it. It basically takes that kind of eraser or kind of push it all aside and just says, you know, I, I, this, is, this is the precursor, but this is far more important. And notice he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. David turns his attention away from the situation, away from what is going on, and he turns it to the Lord. It doesn't immediately change the circumstances. It just changes the direction that he's looking. You, O oh Lord, are, my, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. David makes a deliberate decision. And this is what I want to encourage you, because if you're not in this, if you're not facing a day like this right now or a situation in your life, one's coming. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not protected from the things in life. Again, the winds come, they slam against the house. Jesus said they don't stop. It's just a matter of what we have as our foundation. And the sooner that we take our eyes off of the horizontal and we look to the vertical, we can get to where David is. 
We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that, that the, the Lord's Prayer, is, as Jesus taught us to pray, it begins with our Father in heaven. That's where our prayer should always begin. Again, here, oh Lord, you, oh Lord, focusing our direction on who he is and where he is. Our Father, our heavenly Father, the one who loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us in heaven. Where he is, he sees what we can't. He knows what we don't. He has access to things that we have no idea about. And so that's where he directs his attention. And notice, you're a shield about me, that that protection about me. You're my glory. You're the one who gave it to me. You're the only reason I have it. It's it's all you, Lord. And, And they can't take that away. Nobody can take that away from me. And notice, the one who lifts my head. Now, the visual to that, to me, blesses me because, you know, we come broken and we come come before the Lord and we're like, oh God, and he's just so gentle and kind as he reaches down and maybe puts his hand on our chin and lifts us up, says, yeah, yeah, just look to me. Just look to me. But, what is held in the meaning of this word, the one who lifts my head in the, in the Hebrew as it's written, it literally means to restore, to put back into a place that was previously held. And David is saying, it doesn't matter what they think they're doing, you're the one who has the power and will restore. You're the one who's gonna put things back in its right place. We see this as an example in Genesis chapter 40 when, when Joseph is in prison and remember, he's there, and, and the, the baker and the wine taster, they have the pharaohs, they're thrown in prison, and they have the dreams, and, and Joseph interprets the dreams, and for the cupbearer, he said, in, in a very short time, you will have your head lifted up again, meaning you will be restored to that. He said, the bread guy, you're gonna have your head removed, and that both of them happened. <laughs> but that's what it means, to lift his head, to restore. Notice. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I was crying out to the Lord. I was was pouring out my anguish in what was going on, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Notice again, from where he sits, he's still on the throne. And I love again, there it comes, Selah. So what do you think about that? (laughs) The world might be trying to tell me, God does, God's forsaken you. He doesn't want anything to do with you. He's not there when you need him. He, there's no deliverance for you there. What do you think about that? The Lord answers my prayer from his throne. What do you think about that? And I love, and again, here we go. I laid down and slept I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. When we focus our eyes where they need to be on him, we embrace his promises. We embrace the fact that he's our heavenly father. We are his child. We can have peace. Absolute serenity. Again, just replay the day in your mind that I just described for you. How are you sleeping that night? David said, I prayed, I laid down and slept. I think of Peter in Acts chapter 12, 
tells us that, that James, the brother of John, he was executed, the first disciple to be martyred. And when, when, the, when the king saw how that was well received, he, Peter's arrested and he's, he's awaiting the next day his execution. He is, he's gonna be executed the next day in the same way that, that James was. Now again, let's put ourselves in that situation. What are you gonna be doing all that night? Praying? Lord, deliver me. Get me out of here. I'm not gonna do you any good dead. You know, Get, 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 me, get me through this situation. And then once you realize maybe that, then you start confess. Okay, I got to make sure. I, okay, confess everything. Make sure you maybe even start confessing stuff that you're not even sure you did. And you just want to make sure. Okay, what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. And he didn't have a Serta mattress either. He's, he's on a concrete floor chained to a Roman guard. And he's sleeping so soundly that when the angel got there, he had to wrap him a couple of times to wake him up. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Bible says we're to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God and the peace of God transcends all our understanding. It will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the great thing about prayer. When we understand what it is that we're doing, we're taking our requests, we're making them known to God, and then we say, all right, God, you deal with it. I laid down and slept. Peace serenity. I awoke and the Lord sustains me. He's the one who provides. He's the one who gives me everything I need to take the next step to do the next thing. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me roundabout because he's my protection. He's my security. I don't need to worry about all of that because that's his responsibility. That's his job. Romans 8.31, we know it. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, if you were with us when we studied through Romans, to me, the blessing in that verse is the context that it's in. Because if you just say, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? That leaves it wide open. If he is, we're, we're great. If he's not, we're in big trouble. But it follows this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to, those, to his purposes. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of God, or, or his son, so that those of the so that he would be the firstborn among the brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Talking about even our glorification, which is a future thing for us, in the past tense. It's such a done deal in God's book. He considers it done. That's when the verse comes. What do we say to these things? If God is for us. If it's already in his book that we're gonna be glorified, guys, change that if to since. Since God is for us, who could be against us? And that's where David embraces this now. And he's just like, man, <laughs> all of this going on, you're the one who's called me. Verse seven, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Now he's speaking in the past tense of God's past faithfulness. And when we first read these things, we might think, you know, again, physical things that are taking place, again, 
The Jewish language, Hebrew, and the way that they dealt is very visual. And what it means to smite someone on the cheek, that is about the most humiliating thing that you can do to somebody is to slap them. And it means a backhanded slap. So what he's saying in that is, Lord, you have shown in the past that those who raise themselves up proud against you, that you humble them. And then when he says, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked, it doesn't literally mean physically kicking in their teeth. What it means is you've disarmed them. You've defanged them. You've, you've made a lion, a roaring lion, without any teeth. And what he's saying is, Lord, you've done that in the past. You're a faithful God. And because of that, I'm going to hold on to that, that you're going to again do it again. I'm going to trust you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. By the way, that is the same Hebrew word used back in verse 2 where it says there is no deliverance for him and God. That deliverance is the same word salvation here. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's the one who chooses in this. Psalm 121 is one that I just kind of came to mind with me when I was reading that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And that's the great reason. That's why we can sleep so soundly because he never does. He's always working. He is always in control. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade and your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Child of God, he never stops. His promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and they are yes in Christ Jesus all the time. Psalm chapter four, as we continue to, to move through, many believe is also in the same setting because the, the, the wording that's used as we move through it, you'll see that. It's not for sure that, so we don't want to hold that uh, dogmatically, but we do see in, in the introduction again that it is a psalm of David. It begins with, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You are a righteous God, and I am only righteous because of you. It is all because of you, God. And when we speak of God and his righteousness, all of what that is, God can't do wrong. It's not that he chooses only to be good. That's, that's who he is. He can't be anything but good. He can't be anything but just. He can't be anything but right. You have relieved me in my distress. Again, reminding, not, not reminding God, but reminding himself of God's past faithfulness. Notice here, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Not deal with me as I deserve, but be gracious to me. Grace is that unearned, unmerited favor. Oh, sons of men. Now he turns his direction away from God here, and he starts speaking to those that are coming against him, and that's why some believe that, again, especially as to how he's speaking here, that it's, he's speaking then to Absalom and those that are coming against him. Sons of men, how long will, you, will my honor become a reproach? How long are you going to attempt to totally assassinate my character, ruin my reputation? 
How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Now he turns to to this again. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. Again, speaking of himself, the Lord hears when I call to him. He knows that in and of himself he is not godly. He is, but he is godly because he, he's got a heart after God. God has forgiven him. God, he's never made, it, he's never made himself s- said to be sinless. He understands that he is a sinful man, but that God has, has called him. God has set him apart. God has sanctified him. God has forgiven him. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now he's going to give us some, give some advice and and. I'm not sure if he's still speaking to those that are coming against him or if he's speaking to those that are around him. But listen, it's, it's great advice. Following after the Lord, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Tremble and do not sin. First of all, fear the Lord. Know it is, know who it is that we're dealing with. We're dealing with almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing creator God. Now, the fear that we should have is that reverent, respectful, holy fear. We shouldn't be trembling, you know, shaking, because guys, we're children of God. We're forgiven. But we can take, that, that can go, there's ditches on both sides of the road. We can get into the ditch where, where we get outside of this, this, this love of God and it's this absolute fear. And I don't know if you grew up in a religion like that, but I know many, my wife was one, that grew up in this thing constantly afraid that God was just gonna belt her anytime. And, and that, that's not God. But the ditch on the other side of the road is, hey, the man upstairs, you know, hey, we're just, you know, me, we're, we're bros. We're, you know, and it, losing the reverence. That's that, that healthy reverence. Do not sin. We are called to flee immorality. Not, not see how close we can get without getting burned. No, we are to, to flee. Meditate in your heart upon your bed. Focus on the Lord. Spend that time with him. Be still, hearing from God. Don't rush through your time with the Lord in the, in the morning. I, and I've shared this often. I love early mornings. As hard as it is to get out of bed, as soon as I'm vertical, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm up. Get that cup of coffee, grab my Bible, and oh, what a sweet time of fellowship it is with the Lord. Meditate in your heart. Focus on, on the, 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 the word of God and, and be still before him. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? The sacrifices of righteousness. Now, we could look at it and say, okay, talking about the old sacrificial system and all of the things and following all of that kind of stuff. I don't believe that's what David is saying. The reason I don't believe that is because of what he records, what we, he wrote in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 says this, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
It's interesting that David writes this, you know, you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Psalm 51, it's again, when we, when we get there, it does tell us that this is a psalm that David wrote when Nathan the prophet came to him that we talked about earlier and confronted him with his sin with Bathsheba. He writes in this psalm when he's confronted with that sin, you don't delight in birth sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. The problem with David's sin is first was adultery. There is no sacrifice for adultery. You're caught in the act of adultery. The Bible says you're to be stoned. You're to be executed. He added to that sin, murder. There was no sacrifice to be brought for murder. You couldn't bring a lamb if you're a murderer. What it says in the word is that you were to be taken out and stoned. You were to be killed. So David understands that, that system, but he also understands that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit, a broken heart. And that's what David brought. He was broken over his sin when he was confronted with it. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to say, well, you know what, Lord? Yeah, I did that, but look at all the good stuff I did too. Didn't try to offset anything. No, as a matter of fact, he was totally broken before the Lord. And that, when we come back here, the sacrifices of righteousness, to go before the Lord humbly, to go before the Lord broken. Lord, Lord, you restore. And notice, trust in the Lord. Let God be God. Let him do what he's going to do. Laying out again our requests before him, but then trusting that he is going to do what only God can do. Many are saying, now again, this I believe is now speaking of those that are with him, with David, walking through this situation. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Another way of saying that is, can anything good come from this? You ever thought that? Going through a difficulty, a trial, can anything good come from this? Is, there, is it possible that anything good could come out of this? Please don't say that out loud in front of me. Because you know where we'll go, right? Immediately. Doesn't the word tell us that God works all things together for good? Those who love God and called according to his purposes? And I know that that can become, and we talked about that again when we were going through Romans 8, that can become cliche. We can just say, yep, God works all things for good. And miss the fact that he does. That it's true. Can anything good come out of this? Yes. If we walk uprightly, we keep our focus on the Lord, no matter how bad it might look in the moment, look at what he says next. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Can you let it, give us a glimpse of your perspective? God, let us see from your perspective, even in the midst of this tragedy, what seems like nothing good could come out of this. When looking at it from the outside, there's got to be black and white. There's got to be yes or no. And God, you do things way beyond that. You have put gladness in my heart. Again, in the midst of all of that, Lord, you put gladness in my heart. Have you ever been around that person? I hope you say, yeah, I'm that person. <laughs> In the middle of those trials, in the middle of those difficulties, no matter what it is that's going on, no matter how much pain you might be in, no matter what it is, you could say, I have gladness in my heart. Isn't it a blessing to be around those kind of people? 
I'm going to embarrass him right now, but I'll tell you what, Bob Jensen is one of those people. He suffers from migraines and all sorts of other health things, and you would never know it until I just told you. (laughs) Because he's got gladness in his heart. The joy of the Lord is in his heart. And guys, that that should define us. No matter what it is we're going through, no matter what situation we're facing, people should see the joy of the Lord in us. More than when their grain and new wine abound. So basically what he's saying, in the midst of when I'm going through the toughest day, I have more joy in my heart than the world does when everything's going right for them. More joy, I have more joy in my heart, more happiness, true happiness in my life because I'm a follower of Jesus than that Hollywood actor that just won the Oscar. In that moment when he won the Oscar, I could be going through the most difficult trial in my life and I have joy that he can never have. I have happiness in me as a follower of Jesus that the world can never have no matter how great a day they're having. In peace, again, here it is, I will both lie down and sleep. I have and underscore underlined a couple of times. Because <laughs> a lot of times we lie down, right? And we're restless and going back and forth. But again, that's where this peace, again, the peace we're talking about. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Peace, the peace that, that the Lord gives is so much more than the absence of conflict. Because the world, that's what the world looks at when it says peace, is the absence of conflict. But even in that, there, there isn't real peace. I mean, you can, there's, that, there's evidence all over of that. You can have two people that at the moment aren't fighting, but there's not peace. The peace of God. And that comes as, as, I, as we just go back. We're not, we're not, I wanted to get through chapter five and six tonight. We're not gonna. So let's just go back. This all stems to me as I look through this beginning in verse five. When we come humbly before the Lord and trust in him, these things flow. Gladness in our heart and peace. It flows through. Isaiah 26, three, it says, you will keep in perfect peace all those who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Perfect peace. Jesus says the peace that I give you is not like the world gives. He gives us perfect peace. And literally the the Hebrew in Isaiah is he gives us peace, peace. (laughs) Like peace squared. Peace that the world can't give. And it comes when we trust him and our thoughts are focused on him. Again, (laughs) Get those, you get those days, they come, they go. You face those situations. And, and we've probably all had the situations that come where, where people say things about us or pe- you hear this going on or what those kinds of things. And our flesh wants to jump up and defend and, and do all this stuff. And I just, I love the way that David, just this beautiful picture that says, you know what? If I do that, if I go back and fight back, if I jump back into that, there's going to be a whole lot of innocent people that get killed, that are going to get run over in it. So what I'm going to do is pull back and trust the Lord. I'm going to trust God to do what only God can do. And if you read the whole story, God does what only God can do. 
David is restored as king. All of the people that followed Absalom that didn't die in the battle come back and peace is restored in the, in the land. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that when we follow you, we follow the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. Lord, my prayer right now is for anyone here tonight or anyone listening online that is going through a time of, of turmoil, difficulty, trial. That Lord, that no doubt the enemy whispering in their ear, God can't save you from this. God doesn't want anything to do with you. Lord, I pray that right now that you would give them great comfort. And if that is you, I pray right now, just, just turn, take your attention from the horizontal and go vertical. Bible tells us that we are to, to focus Focus, fix our attention on the author and perfecter of our faith. That is the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for that amazing truth. It's not, it's not a cliche. It's not, it's not just a saying. It's not just a song. Lord, when we do that, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, I pray that that we would be those people who, who are just filled with joy because you've put gladness in our heart. We have what the world can't possibly have unless it comes to know you. We thank you and praise you for that. And Lord, use us. Use us in this time to, to reach out to this lost and dying world, to share the joy and the peace and the hope that we have. It's found only in you. Have your way, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.